for the blessing Jim and his family has been to us for so many years, uh, ever since the beginning. And Lord, um, we thank you for the body of Christ that you put together here. And Lord, that we can gather here and open up the Word of God. And, and Lord, just um, not just get a historical account of what took place um, 2,500 years ago, but Lord, to make application. And Lord, to, to look at this and see your faithfulness and your goodness and your desiring to work in our lives. So Lord, I pray tonight as we come into this place, we can come in with a lot of things that are on our minds and on our hearts, perhaps being tired from working all day. I know some people have been up since very early this morning, maybe not even having a chance to have dinner. So we desire to feast on the Word of God tonight. And Lord, that you would refresh us and renew us. And, and Lord, also that as we study your Word here tonight, that we would be attentive. So Lord, may our ears be open, may our hearts be teachable. As we look at uh, the text here in chapter 3 and as we move into chapter 4 tonight. And we look forward to the things that you want to say to us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, of course, as I mentioned to you, that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are those books of the historical books that take place after the Babylonian captivity. As you know, that as we travel through Second Chronicles, that all those years of the house of Judah, which Second Chronicles focuses on, that it was the different kings that came on the scene, but the nation continued to rebel. And so finally they would go off into captivity, uh, and three waves of captivity would take place in 605 B.C., as it was Nebuchadnezzar leading his troops against Egypt. They had pursued Egypt as they defeated Egypt and Assyria there at the Battle of Shar Shemes in the upper Euphrates. And they had pursued Egypt all the way down to the Sinai. It is Nebuchadnezzar that got word that his father had died, so he had to get back very quickly to secure the throne there in Babylon. On his way back, he stops in Jerusalem. He takes some of the choice men of Judah away. Daniel was one of them. And Daniel would go and he would be trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government, as you know and as we have discussed. So that was the first wave of captivity. And then later on in 597 B.C., what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar would come in once again. There was rebellion from the king, Jehoiakim. And so he comes in, and he would take some away captive and more articles from the temple there in Jerusalem to his temple in Babylon. And we know that Ezekiel was one of those that was taken away captive at that time. Then Zedekiah, he was set up as the last king of Judah, and he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And this time, he comes in, Nebuchadnezzar, the third time, and he destroys Jerusalem. He destroys Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple was a magnificent temple. And we saw that how Solomon built the temple uh, made of gold and overlaid with gold and the floors and the walls and everything. And that temple would, uh, of course, be run down and they would tear the gold out to pay off the enemy, the pagan kings and things like that. But it would be leveled, and Jerusalem would be leveled. So they would go off into captivity starting in about 605 B.C. And then, as we know from Daniel chapter 2 and, and from Daniel chapter 5, that the Babylonian Empire would fall. We know that historically, don't we? And we know that as Babylon would fall, Daniel chapter 5, that Cyrus, he would divert the flow of the Euphrates River that was flowing under the walls of Babylon, that mighty city. And he would come into the city as he walked under the walls, and he would take the city, and that was the fall of Babylon. That was exactly what Daniel had prophesied in his interpretation of the dream in Daniel chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar, this, this image that you saw of a man made of different metals, you are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, but you are going to be replaced by the chest and arms of silver. So that took place in 536 BC. So it would be that the Medo-Persian Empire is now the, on the world scene here. And we know that Cyrus was the first king that would come along at that time and he would give a decree that the Jews could return back to Jerusalem. And as we saw last time, to rebuild the temple. We saw that decree in chapter 1 of the book of Ezra.
So the first wave of return is coming, and as we go through the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, just as there is three waves of captivity that took place, we also know that there is three waves of return that would uh, be recorded for us here in the scriptures. And in 536 B.C., as Cyrus gave that decree that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem, he gave them permission that they could rebuild the temple, and that's what we're going to discuss as we go into chapter 3 here. And so Zerubbabel, who was the civil leader, he would come back with Joshua, who was the spiritual leader, the high priest. And about just under 50,000 people would come back from the captivity, which sounds like a large number, but really it was a small number because most of the people stayed back in Babylon. And so they were comfortable there. They had businesses. They had planted their roots there. And so most of them stayed and only a small number came back. So in chapter 3 here, as we saw in chapter 1, again, the decree that Cyrus gave that they could go back and rebuild the temple. Chapter 2, we saw the families listed there as we surveyed it last week of those that we returned to Jerusalem. And now chapter 3, verse 1, and when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, or Joshua, the son of Zozadak and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to, burn, uh, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In verse 3, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. And verse 4 goes on to tell us, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. So under Zerubbabel, again the civil leader, and Joshua the, the spiritual leader, they come back to Jerusalem. And remember this, that as they come back, the track that they would follow from Babylon, scholars believe it was about 900 miles, that journey that they would make from Babylon to Jerusalem. It would be very difficult travel. Uh, it's very, you know, extreme rough conditions and, and terrain that they're crossing. It's desert. It's hot. And also it would be very dangerous them to travel because of the bandits and because of the people that uh, would come against them perhaps uh, it would be very very hard and they're coming to a city remember that is in rubble uh, that had been destroyed and there's nothing there for them so they come back and and there's no homes and they have to begin to plant the land again to make a living there so they're coming back under those conditions and the very first thing that they do here as we read is they lay the foundation of the altar they're going to build the altar first and that makes sense because what they're doing here is they build the altar they can build the altar without the temple and the altar of sacrifice so they can do the morning and the evening sacrifices of the burnt offerings and you know from Leviticus chapter 1 that the burnt offering was a free will offering wasn't it it was an offering where they would consume the whole animal it was an offering of of worship and it, it was symbolizing that I surrender fully to the Lord and so they were doing those offerings as well as the sin offering that they would give <coughs> as well at, at the altar of sacrifice so they laid the foundation on the original base that Solomon had, you know, built for the altar some 400 years previously. And then they build that altar so they can do the sacrifices. Again, I want us to take note here what it says that they would do that in verse 3, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. I think that's a good principle for you and for me. Because, you see, as we do make application, we know that we are called to be a living sacrifice, aren't we? And I think it's a good practice and a good thing to do to have your devotions in the morning and also in the evenings. To come to the Lord when you start your day, whatever that might mean for you. For some of you, that means very early in the morning. For some of you, that might mean later on. But as you begin your day, the, the morning offering, the morning sacrifice, just coming to, in your devotion to the Lord, spending time with Him, 
and praying with him. And then at the end of your day also to be able to do that as well. And I know that we enjoy doing that, Sue and I, as we will pray at the end of the day. I like just being able to check in with the Lord and, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for guiding me today. And this is what is coming tomorrow. And just be able to end the day with the Lord as well. So the morning and the evening sacrifices that they were doing, and again, the priority was the altar, and you know that the altar of sacrifice points to, is the illustration of, and speaks of Jesus, who is the sacrifice for you and for me. So there was that, that brass altar that they would make out in the outer court, and it is interesting that they would make that first, and then they're going to make the temple. And that's a pattern that I think that perhaps that we're going to see when they rebuild the temple in the tribulation period. It is interesting that we know that there is no temple in Jerusalem today. When we go into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this Sunday, as we opened up the chapter last week, we saw that Paul was writing to a group of believers there in Thessalonica that were upset because they thought they are in the day of the Lord. And Paul says, listen, don't you know, be shaken. Don't be troubled. Uh, either by, you know, spirit, a revelation that somebody had come and said that you're in the day of the Lord, or by, you know, uh, words uh, uh, that is spreading around, or by a letter that it was a letter circulating amongst the Christians there in Thessalonica that had Paul's name to it, and it was a forgery. He says none of that um, is true. And he establishes them in truth once again. And he says the day of the Lord is not going to start until, you know, there's a falling away first. That is, there's going to be a great falling away of, the, of truth in the tribulation period. And we know that there's going to be a false church that will be established as we see that in Revelation chapter 17. But also he mentions, and also the revealing of the son of perdition, that is the Antichrist. And then as we pick it up here this Sunday, we're going to see that Paul mentions that the Antichrist will establish himself and exalt himself as God in the temple of God. And that's interesting because there is no temple in Jerusalem today. This temple that is being built by Zerubbabel would stand for about 500 years, and then Herod would come along and he would modify the temple. And what he did is he expanded the Temple Mount area and he made it a magnificent structure. And later on, it ended up being called Herod's Temple. But that temple ended up being destroyed, as most of you know, in 70 AD as Titus and the Roman soldiers surrounded Jerusalem, came in, broke through the walls, and then they would tear the temple stone by stone apart. And so there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. But we know that the Bible talks about there's yet a future temple that scholars call the Tribulation Temple. And it is in that temple that this man, the son of perdition, the, the man of sin, the, the Antichrist, the little horn of the book of Daniel, that he will go into that temple and he will exalt himself as God, as Paul writes there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And also we know from the book of Revelation chapter 13 that he will set up an image of himself. He will proclaim himself as God there in the temple. So there will be a temple rebuilt. And it seems as though that perhaps that as the tribulation period begins with the Antichrist establishing and, and, uh, and confirming a covenant with Israel, a peace treaty of some sort for one week, and that is for seven years, it's going to enable them to rebuild their temple. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you go to Israel today, you go to Jerusalem, you can go to a place that's called the Temple Institute. And you can go into the Temple Institute, and they'll show you how they got all the furnishings and all the, the articles of the temple prepared to go, and they're just waiting for the go-ahead to build a building. But it's also interesting that they will tell you that the first thing that they will do is build an altar, just as it's told here that the first thing that they did is they built the altar so they can do the sacrifice. And you see, you can have an altar uh, without the temple. We can't really have the temple without the altar. They can go ahead and begin animal sacrifices even before the temple itself is built. So that's a pattern that you, we very much uh, could see that takes place there 
in the tribulation period, just kind of a note of interest. But also here, as we see here, just a couple other things to point out in the verses that we read, that we see that they would uh, go in the seventh month had come, that they began to, to build this, this altar. The seventh month in verse 1, it's an important month in the spiritual calendar of Israel. They would celebrate in that month the Day of Atonement. You know what the Day of Atonement is? Is when the high priest would go behind the veil when the tabernacle was uh, there in the wilderness and also when they first came into the promised land. The tabernacle was the, the place where they did the sacrifices and, and ministered uh, in the tabernacle for hundreds of years till Solomon built the temple. But we know that behind the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat and that's when the high priest once a year on the day of atonement would go behind the veil and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation also during that seventh month was not only the day of atonement that took place but the feast of trumpets and the feast of tabernacle which was mentioned here in verse four but one of the things that i like here is that it says here that the people gathered as one i really like that here it is this was a difficult journey these are hard days the cities in rubble, they have to rebuild everything. And they come as one. And may we be of one mind and one spirit, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. You see, that was Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, as you read in Philippians chapter 1. And my prayer for us, whatever the days ahead are for the church and the spiritual condition of our nation, that if it gets difficult and hard, that we would strive together with one mind and one accord for the furtherance of the gospel. So here they are. They're coming and they build the altar. They're going to rebuild the temple. And verse 3, before we move on, um, I think it's important to note here that it says that though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, in other words, those who kind of took over the land during the 70 years that they were absent, this was something that was not only practically very difficult, but fear would come upon them. Fear would come upon them because there are those who were coming against them, and we're going to read more about that specifically as we continue on here in the book of Ezra. You know, sometimes when we serve the Lord, that anxiety can come to us, we can become fearful. And yet, as they are ones that have fear to come upon them, they still did the work. And for you and for me, that should be an encouragement because fear can come to us as we desire to stand for the Lord and to serve the Lord and to live for the Lord because the world comes against us and the world hates us and the enemy comes against us. And I know that there have been times in my life and in my ministry where, you know, I had anxiety, where I had fear in me. You know, I once in a while I'll talk to somebody. I remember one time... Uh, Somebody said to me, well, I, I never fear anything. And I thought, boy, you're a whole lot tougher than I am because I've had fear that has come to me and gripped my heart at times. And it is in those times I need to remember that the Lord says to me over and over again in the Scriptures, you don't have to be afraid. And that He says that He hasn't given us the spirit of fear but of power and love and of a sound mind. And He desires for us to, to be strong and courageous. And that's the work that the Lord desires to do in us when we're gripped with fear, when we become anxious. And please remember that because that's the work that the Lord desires to do in your life and in my life and in the life of this church. The help is to be courageous, to, to be strong. When fear does grip our lives and, and the circumstances that we might face or the attacks that come against us, whatever it might be, the Lord is with us to make us strong and to encourage us so we can keep doing what God has called us to do. So that's what they were doing here. And we read in verse 4 that they would, again, kept, keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, as most of you know, there were three major feasts that the uh, Jews would celebrate, Passover, Pentecost, and then in the fall, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was the most festive, I think, of all the festivals and, um, and feasts that they would celebrate. And the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths, 
that were, uh, that's described to us in the book of Moses that they were to celebrate when they came into the promised land. It commemorated that how God brought them through the wilderness wandering, how he gave them manna to eat and, and water to drink that flowed from the rock. And matter of fact, we see that Jesus, in John chapter 7, you recall he's in Jerusalem, and it tells us that at the end of the great feast, that he would stand up and he would cry out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. And what it was is the people would come and they would set up these little tents, booths, they, uh, tabernacles, and, and the fathers would talk to the sons how God brought them through the wilderness and provided manna and provided water for them and brought them into the promised land. And matter of fact, we know that it was the priest that during the days of the feast that would have a procession that would go from the temple up there on the Temple Mount and they would walk down to the low point of the city where the Pool of Siloam was and they would come back as they would fill up their jars full of water and they would come back and they would be singing those pilgrimage psalms, you know, that we have written and then pouring out the water on the pavement symbolizing how the Lord provided water for them in the wilderness wandering. But on the last day of the feast, they didn't do that. And what that also symbolized and reminded the people was that when they did come into the promised land, they came into a land flowing with milk and honey. The manna would stop. The water from the rock would stop. Uh, it wasn't necessary. God had given them the land. And it is at that time that Jesus stands up and says, If any of you thirst, come and drink of me. And out of your bellies will flow torrents of living water, of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So the question that I want to ask every single one of us here tonight, in honesty of your heart, where are you at spiritually? Are you thirsty? Are you unfulfilled and unsatisfied? Does life seem to be mundane? Are you going through life where you just feel down or whatever it might be? And Jesus gives that invitation to anyone who is willing to come. Come to me, anyone, all and come drink of me, you who thirst. And I will fulfill you and satisfy you. You know, we were talking, some of us, earlier before the service. Um, we're sure waiting for spring to come, aren't we? We can't wait for spring to come. And if you're like me, you're tired of looking at the snow that's been around for a while. But spring is going to come, isn't it? And not soon enough, but it's going to come. And it won't be long that we're going to be in our yards and raking the grass and we're going to be working in the garden. Don't you love that time of year when it finally is that time of year to get outside and do some yard work? I don't know. Maybe you don't like doing yard work, but I, I like doing that. Getting out, and, and I like it when you first you know, get your hands into the dirt to get ready for the garden because we have you know, some, some planter boxes in the back that we like to plant tomatoes and vegetables and other things, and I, I love being able to do that. And it gets warm when you're doing that, and it gets hot, and, and it won't be long that we'll be complaining about the heat. But out there, when you're doing that, when you're thirsty, you don't reach down and put a handful of dirt in your mouth, do you? No. We go inside and we get a drink of water. We go to that source that will f fulfill us and satisfy us, our thirst, and that is water or whatever beverage that you might drink. And you see, there's a lot of people, and even Christians, that unfortunately, that just seem to be unfulfilled and unsatisfied and no joy and seem like there's no real purpose right now. And the question is, what are you drinking? And where are you going? Jesus said to that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, as she's saying, you know, they're talking about water and, and living water is what Jesus is talking about. But she's thinking of Jacob's well, and she says, but you don't have a bucket, and the, the well is deep. And Jesus said, you drink of that well, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give, you'll never thirst. If you draw from the well of the world and the world's pleasures, it might satisfy you for a very, very short time but you're always going to be thirsty. And if you are thirsty here tonight, really, in the honesty of your heart, that you say, Lord, I thirst. I thirst for satisfaction and real fulfillment and real purpose. Then go to Jesus and just surrender fully to Him.
He's the bread of life. He's the living water that has to give to you. And he says, whoever eats me will never hunger and thirst again as you believe in me, the bread of life. So here was the Feast of Tabernacles that they would celebrate that, and, and here they're, they're doing that once again. As it is written, the daily offerings once again, verse 5, afterwards they offered the regular burnt offerings, and those for the new moons and all the appointed feasts of the Lord were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. In verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the Lord um, had not been laid. So again, taking care of the altar first, doing the sacrifices, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle and the new moons, uh, which marked the first day uh, of the month and uh, was a holy day, according to Numbers chapter 28. And we read in verse 7, And they also gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they're going to build the temple. And you recall that in Second Chronicles chapter 2, when Solomon built the temple, they got some uh, cedar logs from Lebanon, and they floated them down along the coast of the Mediterranean. And then they would go to Joppa and then bring them up to Jerusalem. And, and that practice here, to a smaller degree, is uh, floating logs and uh, using those uh, cedar logs as they have carpenters and masons to help them um, as the logs would go to Joppa and then up to Jerusalem. In verse 8, now in the second month of the second year, they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Zozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua and his sons and his brother Kadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hanadad, uh, with their sons and their brethren in the Levites. And when the builders, verse 10, laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So now they, after they build the altar and they're doing the sacrifices, they laid the foundation of the temple. And um, you might recall that as they lay the foundation of the temple here, there's praising, there's worshiping that's going on. And we know that um, here it tells us that the Levites from 20 years old in verse 8 and above to oversee the work of the house, the instructions are given to them to make sure that this work is going to begin and also to do the work that is before them. Now, we do know as well that you recall that it was... Um, it was uh, David. You recall when he was making preparations there in First Chronicles chapter 23 for Solomon when he would come and build the, the temple, that David got all the Levites and the priests all in order according to their divisions, the gatekeepers and the musicians and, and all those who did all manner of work, and he lowered the age from 30 years old that was told to Moses out there in the wilderness, and he lowered the age to 20 years old for the Levites. And the pattern was is that these young guys, 20 years and above, would oversee the work of the house of the Lord, and they would do all manner of service. I think, first of all, that that's a great time to learn ministry. It's a great time to learn ministry and serve the Lord at any time, at any age. I mean, Moses was 80 years old when he was called to ministry, but particularly that we would encourage those who are young in the ministry of the Lord. And I hope and pray for us as a church that we would have that mindset, that we would have that, that um, you know, desire to see young guys and, and people that are young to begin to learn ministry. You know, one of the things that they would do is after 50 years of age, the Levites would then begin to train those who are younger. 
those who are going to do the service of the Lord. And I think that's a really good model for us to follow. For those of us who have been in ministry, and you know, for a certain amount of time and length of time, to be able to come and then encourage those who are young. Because those who are young, that's the future of the church. And there are sometimes a mindset in churches and ministry that kind of leave the young people behind and kind of a cynical attitude towards the young people. May that never be said of us here at Calvary Chapel. And what we see the result is, is that there are churches that are dying because they never invested in the young people. And we want to invest in our young people. We want to invest in everyone. Again, any age is good to begin to serve the Lord and to begin to learn about ministry, but also not to leave our young people behind. It's such a blessing to see the young people that are serving here and learning about ministry at Calvary Chapel. And you may not always see it, but they roll up their sleeves and they work and they're doing ministry. And I hope and pray that we are ones that we encourage them in that, that we would bless them and that we would pray for them. And it will be a tremendous blessing for us. So here they're praising God and giving thanks to the Lord uh, as we read this. It reminds me of what Paul wrote to, to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Remember he said to them, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And as we discussed when we went over that te- text just a few weeks ago, I want to remind you of something that's very important for all of us. To remember, and that is if you stop being thankful, you're going to lose your joy. If you are not thankful to the Lord, and all of us have reason to be thankful, because Jesus Christ died for our sins, and we have right relationship with the Father, and we have the promise of heaven, and as a Christian, we always have a reason to be thankful, even in the most difficult of times. Because our Lord is real, and He loves us, and he, He's working on our behalf. His promises are true, and He promised He'll never leave us or forsake us. And if you ever stop being thankful, you will lose your joy. You'll stop being joyful. So they're closely connected, being thankful and also having great joy as they are rejoicing in the Lord. And then as we finish the chapter, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Interesting, isn't it? As they laid the foundation of the temple here, getting ready to build the house of the Lord, we see that there's praising and thanking God for what he has done. But then the older men wept because they knew that this temple here wouldn't be anything compared to Solomon's temple. The glory and the splendor of Solomon's temple. Because remember, when we went through Second Chronicles, Solomon, I mean, he overlaid uh, the temple with gold. So much gold was used in that first temple. And the Holy of Holies, everything was made of gold. The floors, the walls, the ceiling, the, the large cherubim that, that reached a span of 45 feet that, t- that would touch each other as you would go behind the veil and then the chain. It was all made of gold. So there was so much gold that was in the temple and it was a beautiful, magnificent uh, building the temple was that Solomon built. This temple here, Zerubbabel's temple, is a very modest temple. But it's going to be a temple that God will honor. Haggai, and again, as you look at the historical books, and you line them up with the books of the prophets, the prophets when they were ministering, uh, you know, during the times of, of, you know, the history of Israel, you know that after the captivity and they begin to return to the land, that there are three prophets that were ministering, as you see in the end of the Old Testament. There was Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. And Haggai, he in chapter 2, verse 9 of his book, would tell the people that the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace, and they shall come to the desires of all the nations. Now a couple things in that. One, as we read this, as the older is crying 
oh, why, you know, the days of Solomon's temple, they remembered and they're weeping because this temple is going to be very, very modest, but yet God's going to honor it. God's still working. God's going to do a marvelous, marvelous work to where actually this temple, would, the glory would be greater. But before we get to that, here's the thing that we need to be careful of. Sometimes we can look at what God has done in the past and we think, oh, that was so wonderful. That was a great move of God. And we kind of begin to weep. And we can look back and, and again, when God was moving in our lives or uh, in a ministry that we're involved in and we can be thankful for that. But here's the thing, God's not through. And God still wants to work. And sometimes the mindset, you know, I talk to people, oh, I remember when I was going here and things were going great and I was serving the Lord. And I think, well, what about now? God's not through with you. He still wants to use you. He still wants to work. And I pray that even us as a church, if the Lord tarries, that as we as a church just continue to be faithful to what God's called us, that we wouldn't look back and say, oh, that was the glorious days and that was the most wonderful days that we would always look forward to God still wants to work and, and do wonderful things in our midst. So here were the older men that, again, were weeping, and the younger guys that were just rejoicing with joy because they knew that God was going to work, and we're building the temple here. But as Haggai in chapter 2, verse 9, said that the, the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, that we do know that right before the birth of Jesus, that Herod the Great, and the reason that he was called the Great was not because he was a great guy. He was a very cruel individual. He was the king of Judea, but he was a great builder. And what he did is he remodeled Zerubbabel's temple and remodeled it to where it became a magnificent structure, a glorious structure. It was overlaid, the, the temple with gold that, that Herod had brought in. And matter of fact, that Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that when you stood on the, the Mount of Olives and looked at the temple there, Herod's temple, when the sun came up behind you, because the Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem, that when the sun sh was shining on that gold, you couldn't look at it because of the reflection of the sun off that gold. That's why Jerusalem's called the Golden City also because of the stones that they use in the buildings even today in building Jerusalem. So it became a magnificent structure, one of the wonders of the world the temple was when Herod was remodeling it. He didn't finish remodeling it till 63 A.D., seven years before it would be destroyed. And not one stone would be placed upon another as it was ripped apart. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can see where they've done recent excavations where they actually took the stones of the temple and threw them over the wall down into what is called the Terrapin Valley. There's a road there, a road that Jesus walked on. Very fascinating to see. So it became a magnificent structure. Here's another thing to remember that, you know, during the, the feast that people, the Jews, came from all over and filled Jerusalem, but also the Gentiles would come as well. You remember in John chapter 12 that it was the Gentiles that came and said, we wish to see Jesus? <coughs> we wish to see Jesus. And the message that Jesus would give to them, if they want to see me, then he would talk about a seed that would be in the ground and die, and then it would, you know, uh, bear fruit and it would come alive again in other words what jesus was saying to those greeks they want to see me then they need to see me in the light of my death and burial and resurrection and jesus was only a few days away from going to the cross when he said that now why were the greeks in jerusalem because the greeks of course they worshiped all kinds of gods but they thought greater the temple greater the god and we're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to check out this God of Israel. And then as you know from the book of Isaiah, that as Jesus, he would quote from Isaiah when he rebuked the religious leaders, that he said, you made my father's house a den of thieves. It's a house of prayers, what Jesus would say, quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah says, a house of prayer for all the nations. 
And you recall the dedication of prayer that Solomon would write when a foreigner came. It was to be a testimony of the greatness and the magnificence of God. But here are the religious leaders ripping the people off. So they were coming, and instead of being a witness, they saw all this junk and religiousness that was going on. And they come to Jesus and say, we want to see you. As you are a witness to others, because that second temple would be destroyed, but do you know that the Lord has been building another temple that's greater than the first temple or the second temple? And that is you and me. A holy habitation, as Peter would write in his epistle. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about he makes a temple not made with hands. That is, you and I, that we are the living temple of God individually and as the church, living stones that are being put together. And what my prayer and hope is that as people see us and our witness, that it would somehow reflect and give a message of the glory and truthfulness of the Lord. They don't need all our religiousness. They need to know that we have relationship and truth and that there's love in us and light in us to give to others. So here was these guys weeping and, and because the glory of, of this temple, and of course it would be Jesus whose desire of all the nations that would be in the second temple. And it was uh, something that um, the people of Israel didn't recognize but he's in us, living temples, living stones that make up this temple. And we are to make sure that we are just showing the reality of Jesus Christ to others in our lives. Chapter 4, very quickly, in verse 1, And then the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So the foundation's been laid. The adversary says, we want to join in with you. Whenever God is working, our adversary, the devil, is going to oppose that work, isn't he? And one of the ways that he will try to oppose that work is he'll try to join that work. Now, these guys that are mentioned here are the early Samaritans. You know the Samaritans that are mentioned in the Gospels? And the Samaritans, as we've talked about in our previous studies, when the Assyrians came and took the ten northern tribes off into captivity, they didn't take everybody off into captivity. They left some behind. And then the Assyrians would come into that uh, northern Israel and they would you know, intermarry with the Jews and the offsprings were called the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, we know that they were ones that they did believe in some of the things of the laws of Moses, but then they had other weird beliefs and, and superstitions and traditions that, that were of pagan nature. So the Samaritans and the Jews did not have good relationships, and at the time of Jesus, they really hated each other. And that's why it's the woman in John chapter 4 that said, why is it you being a Jew talking to me, a woman, a Samaritan woman? They used to avoid each other. The Samaritans weren't allowed to come and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So here are the Samaritans. They're wanting to come, and, and they're wanting to help, but what they're, as Zerubbabel and Joshua knows, they're either wanting to ruin the work or impact the work to their benefit, to bring compromise to true temple worship. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua, the rest of the hands of the fathers, verse 3, and houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for, God, for our God, for we alone will build a house or the Lord God in Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. So Zerubbabel says, No. Now, you might read that and think, Well, that's not very nice. But here's the thing. He knew, as well as the people, that letting them help would compromise the work that God wanted them to do. Listen, I think the church needs to be careful. In a day where we want to just include everybody and accept everything. That we want to be careful that we don't want those coming in and that coming in, which causes compromise and deception. We need to be wise and discerning in the day in which we're living in. 
And verse 4, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And verse 6 tells us, In the reign of Asa Uerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. A couple things here. So here they are being told that they, the Samaritans can't join in building the temple. What they do is they come against the work, and they do it in three ways here, as we read in on, uh, verses 4 and 5. One was discourage them. Second of all, trouble them, the Jews. And then thirdly, hire counselors against them. That's the way that the world and the enemy will come against you and me, those of us who serve the Lord. Will you realize that? First of all, he'll try to discourage us. And I think that any of us that have ministered for any length of time, that we have gone through discouragement at one time in our lives, in our ministry, haven't we? It can come to us in, in different ways, in different angles. We can become discouraged. So know that that's one of the tactics of the enemy to try to get you to stop ministering and serving the Lord is to discourage you. That's why it's important that we encourage one another and build each other up and really pray for each other because that discouragement will come. Second of all, to trouble them. And they would trouble them in, in different ways. And, and we're going to see here that one of the ways that they troubled them was they hired counselors against them. In other words, they would trouble them by, by writing letters. And there's a number of letters as we're going to read the rest of chapter 4 we got to kind of put our thinking caps on a little bit here because it's covering the span of about 80 years here in different letters that were written to the different kings of, of, um, of Persia that came on the scene. So we know that um, here is them trying to do the work of the Lord, but then more discouragement, more trouble would come, hired counselors against them. There are those who were saying, well, you need to go tell the king. You need to try to stop the work. And, and that was a great discouragement to them. And again, these are tactics that the enemy uses. Tries to discourage us. He tries to trouble us in any way. And then he will, you know, hire counselors against them. People that will say to you and to me, well, you can't do that. What makes you think that you can do that when the Lord has told us to do something? What makes you think you can minister here? What makes you think that you can do this thing? So, you know, there are those who will try to come against us in those different ways, and that's what's happening here. Now, as I said, in, in verse 6, there, there was, um, you know, a letter that was written, and that's one of the ways that they would trouble the Jews. In the reign of uh, Ahaz Uerus, in the beginning of the reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Artaxerxes also. So here's, here's what's happening here. To know historically, and again, the rest of chapter 4 is going to kind of cover the next 80 years. So they laid a foundation of the temple. And what's going to happen is that work is going to stop because they're going to be discouraged. They're going to be troubled. But also Haggai says that you're turning inwardly and you're just focused on building your own homes. We know that from the book of uh, Haggai. But as we continue reading, let's go ahead and read it. Rahim, the commander of Shemshai, the scribe wrote against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in the fashion. So all these guys mentioned in verse 9 and the rest of the nations in verse 10, who the great and noble Asnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. And this is the copy of the letter they sent him to King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth. And as you read verse 12 through, it talks about, well, let's read it real quickly. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city, they call it the evil city, and repairing the foundations. And let it, be no, uh, let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king dishonored. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. And 
that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So, hey, don't let them build the walls. Don't let them build the city. And, um, you know, because they're going to rebel against you, they won't pay taxes and they'll dishonor you, king. They've done that in the past. Verse 17, the king sent an answer to the commander, to Shemshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria and to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I give the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellions and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shemshai described and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. And thus the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. Let's put it together very quickly and make application. This is what's happening. This trying to get the Jews to stop doing the work of the Lord was for 80 years. Cyrus he comes on the scene, the first king of, of Persia, right? He gives a decree, as we read in chapter 1, go ahead and go rebuild the temple. You can rebuild the temple. We know that um, they would return. As we read in chapter 3, what did they do? They built the altar to, to begin the sacrifices, and they laid the foundation of the temple. Well, these threats came against the people, and discouragement and, and discouraging them and trouble. And so that would take place in 535 B.C. And what happened was the work of building the temple stopped for 15 years. And verse 24 here, the last verse, really belongs with chapter 5 here. And what happened was that work stopped until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. So here is, and we'll have a quiz after service here tonight is you have Cyrus, who's the king, to about 530 B.C. From 530 to about 521 B.C., Cambyses, he's the king. After Cambyses, Darius becomes, or Darius, however you want to say it, in about 521 B.C. So in the second year, in 520 B.C., they begin to rebuild the temple after 15 years of it just not anything happening because of the difficulty and discouragement that had come. And plus, again, as we put it all together, Haggai says that you're only concerned about building your panel houses. But the temple would be rebuilt, and it would be finished in about 516 B.C. After Darius would come this individual that is mentioned to us in verse 6, A.S. Sir Eris, or Xerxes, that's easier to say. Xerxes, he is ruling during the time of Esther. Matter of fact, he ends up marrying Esther, remember, in the book of Esther? So this, this letter here that is written to him is after the temple is built. After Xerxes comes Artaxerxes. And that's what we just read about, this letter that the copy here is given to us to Artaxerxes when the temple has already been built, the story of Esther has already taken place, and now they want to rebuild the city walls and, um, around Jerusalem to protect them in the streets again. And Artaxerxes said, tell them to stop until I give the command. And we will see the command in Nehemiah chapter 2. As Nehemiah is the cupbearer, he hears that the city is still in rubble. There's no wall around the city, and he's saddened. And King Artaxerxes asked him, you know, what's wrong, Nehemiah? Nehemiah prays, and then Artaxerxes gives the command in chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah, which is a very important note there because it would then help us to understand one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the scripture given in Daniel chapter 9. 
that when the command comes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming of Messiah the Prince, it will be six weeks and 63 weeks, 483 years. We'll talk about it when we get to Nehemiah chapter 2. So during that time, for 80 years, from about 5, you know, 35 B.C. to 445 B.C. with Nehemiah when the command came, all this discouragement would come. Writing letters to Darius and, and to Xerxes and Artaxerxes and tell them to stop and all of this. Listen. The enemy will come against you and me and this church and what God is doing in your life time and time and time again and he won't stop. I think about Zerubbabel, how discouraged it must have been. We built the altar, we built the foundation of the temple. It is there and, and Joshua, he must be excited, but all of a sudden the work stopped for 15 years because of the discouragement. And Zechariah, one of the prophets that was on the scene with Haggai ministering at that time has a vision and you go and tell Zerubbabel this vision Zechariah chapter 4 that the hands that laid the foundation of the temple are going to be the hands that finish it you go tell Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel had to be so frustrated Joshua he had to be frustrated he probably felt like a failure because the people again were starting to turn inwardly you go tell Zerubbabel that not to despise the day of small things. And perhaps you're in a time in your life where you feel like it's small things, it's small you know, days right now. God's doing such small things, but don't be discouraged by that. Let him do what he wants to do in your life. Peter, row out a little ways. Can I borrow your boat? And he would get in the boat with Peter and he'd row out a little ways and then he would speak to the multitudes there on the shore. And then he turned to Peter and he said, now go out to the deep and drop your nets. Can you just row out a little ways? Can you do that? And maybe the Lord has you in that place where you've just gone out a little ways and he's teaching you and he's showing you and preparing you and working in you and you never know when the Lord's going to turn to you and say, okay, now go out to the deep. He who is faithful in the little things, he'll give greater things to do. But don't despise the day of small things. I know that there have been plenty of times in my life where I think it's such small things, Lord, and I ought to just quit and forget about it, and I want to stop fighting. Instead of fighting the good fight of faith. And he says, don't despise the day of small things. And it'll be mountaintops that will be shouting grace upon grace. You tell Zechariah, and you tell him, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It isn't by all your togetherness and all your intelligence and all everything that's about you. It's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, it's not by might nor by power. Zerubbabel, you'll finish the temple. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, and he who has begun a good work in you, being confident of this very thing, Paul writes, that he will bring it to completion, especially in a day of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you. That, Lord, that we don't have to strive and strain and rely on our abilities. Lord, when our lives become gripped with fear and discouragement and trouble, that you're still working to not to despise the day of small things. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in the little things, faithful to you. Lord, I pray that all of us would be completely surrendered to the Lord. I pray if there's anybody that happens to be here tonight or listening to this message later, you're in the coffee shop, whatever it might be, that you've never surrendered to Jesus, your life. That you don't know if you're really right with God or what would happen if your life was to come to end 
Am I going to go to heaven, Lord? Do I have true relationship? Paul said, examine to see if you're in the faith. That you would know that Jesus, that he did the work for you. He went to the cross. He became the sacrifice for all of us. And he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price for your sins. And now the scripture says you come realizing you're a sinner and you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That is, you must be born again, Jesus said. You come and you confess you're a sinner, that I need Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. The Bible says to repent. And you come in that repentance just recognizing that I need to run to Jesus, turn to Him and surrender to Him completely. If that means anything to anyone tonight, today is the day of salvation. All these things that we've talked about, if you're thirsty, you know, trusting in the Lord, you've got to have a relationship with the Lord. And it comes by faith and trust in Him. And you'll be forgiven of your sins and you'll have the hope of heaven. And you'll have true relationship with the true and living God that comes only through Jesus Christ. And you pray, Jesus, I confess I am a sinner. I come tonight, tonight. I come today because today is the day of salvation for me. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins because I believe that you died on Calvary's cross for me and you rose from the grave three days later. And you're alive. Be my personal Lord and Savior and help me to live for you, to follow after you. Fill me with your spirit right now. And Lord, thank you for your promise of eternal life. And for all of us here today, that maybe you're discouraged, maybe you have fear, maybe you're troubled, whatever it might be, 